this man, Gideon, has just led the nation of Israel to an overwhelming, incredible victory over their enemies, the Amalekites and the Midianites. It was truly amazing. We learned about this last week. He, he took 300 of his men, and he defeated an army that was numbered well over 135,000. <laughs> Overwhelming odds. And when the, the battle concluded, the Bible says that only 15,000 members of the enemy's army escaped. And it, so it was an overwhelming victory. And it was carried out in such a way that it left no doubt that it wasn't Gideon who did this, right? It was who? It was God. It was God. And Gideon knows that. Everybody that saw it knows that. And so after the victory was won, Gideon even took time to really deal with a couple of, the, uh, of his brother's villages, the Israelite villages, that refused to help his army during this time. And they refused to help Gideon carry out the will of the Lord. We saw how dangerous it is to be found on the wrong side of the Lord. And uh, regardless of your motives, they were, you could re- rationalize, well, they were just protecting their own people. They didn't know for sure if Gideon was going to actually win this battle. So if they helped Gideon and he lost, the enemy would come after them as well. But, so they were maybe doing the right thing in their heart, but it was still the wrong side of God's will. And uh, so now we come to this part in, in, Roman, or in uh, Judges 8 where the battle is over. The victory has been secured. Gideon is forced to face... Now, probably the greatest trial of his life. And he's this farmer guy who had been called by God to be a warrior and uh, thought that probably maybe his greatest battles were behind him at this point after this overwhelming victory. But little did Gideon know that the greatest battles he would face were still in front of him. And that's sometimes how our lives are, right? We go through something that's very traumatic, whatever. We think, wow, God got us through that. That's great. And we don't even know what's coming. <laughs> and it, sometimes it can make that battle seem like, you know, uh, nothing, uh, what's down, coming down the, down the road. So in his march to victory, Gideon overcame the criticism, remember, of all his opponents. We looked at this last week. And the brutal enemies of his nation, the great but unfounded opposition, And so when you read Gideon's story, the one thing I want you to kind of understand is that you see that he was able, by God's help, to really secure and overcome every external enemy that he faced with God's people. And you see that he he failed when he had to fight the inner man, what was inside. He did great against the enemies. But tonight we're going to see when it, when it comes to the inner man, his own heart, his own soul, uh, he came up short. He was a failure in the battle of his own heart. And it's, it's troubling when you see something like this in somebody's life who God has used in an incredible way and yet they end up at the end of their life kind of on the ash heap. <laughs> And, and Gideon, to us, is really, it, it reveals the truth that it is possible to live a good life, because for the most part he did, accomplish much for the Lord, which no one would argue that he didn't do that, but still end up on the short end of the stick, still end up 
what some people would consider a failure. And it, it really drives home to us how we finish the race is almost more important than the race itself. You know, you can live a good life and then you can undo all the good that you've done up to that point by one or two stupid decisions. None of us are away from making one or two stupid decisions that would ruin our credibility, ruin our testimony, defame the Lord of Christ, and all that would be very troubling, but it could happen to any one of us. And we need to be reminded of that because sometimes we have victories in our life and we think because we had one victory that all the other victories are just going to come as easy. And that's usually never the case. And so that's, that's what Gideon teaches us today. And so we want to look at some of the areas of Gideon's life which display both sides of his character. Like I said, he won some battles, he lost some battles. Uh, he succeeded in one area, but he actually failed in two other areas. And we're going to look at that tonight. And so we're going to be looking at the temptations of Gideon's final days. And so if you have your Bibles, open it up to Judges chapter 8, and I'll begin in verse 22. And we're just going to read through it, and then we'll go through our outline together. It begins in verse 22, and this is where we left off last week. Judges eight twenty-two. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. And, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from uh, his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And he answered, and they answered him, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak out and every man threw in at the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Now, how much is that in modern-day time? It's about $1.2 million. (laughs) This was beside the crescent ornaments and the pennants and the purple garments worn by the kings of the Midianites because he won the battle, so he took the spoils. And besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels, he took that as well. Verse 27, And Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it, and we'll talk about what that is, he put it in his city. Ophrah, and all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Verse 29, Zerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons. So you know that he wasn't doing this the right way, okay? But he had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. He and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. In verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel, here we go again, we've seen this a million times, right? The people of Israel turned again and whored after the, the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. 
Verse 34, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all the enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of uh, Zerubbabel, or Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, his family, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Father, we ask you to bless your word to our hearts tonight. Give us uh, wisdom through your spirit to understand and apply the text. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see this story of Gideon doesn't necessarily end all that well. And he faced secular temptation is the first point in the outline there. Um, Verses 22 and 23. There was a request made of Gideon. I mean, he was very much respected. And the Israelites were so impressed with Gideon's victory that they came to ask him, hey, we want you to be our king. And that's what they say there, basically, in verse um, 22. It says, they, they, they asked and said to Gideon, rule over us. And not just you, but you and your son and your grandson. In other words, we want all of your family to rule over us because we want to be on the right side of this. And you are an amazing warrior. And we just think you would do a good job. And so they're offering Gideon and his family kind of a perpetual reign a perpetual kingdom in their midst. And they say the offer is for him, his sons, and his son's sons, his, his grandchildren, his grandsons. And so the people of Israel are just like people, I would say, in, in every age. Uh, if there's a man that can give you peace and security and success and wealth, you want that person to be your leader. That's the, the, where we live today. Uh, and, and you see this during the life of, of Christ as well. In John chapter 6, remember when Jesus fed the multitude, right? He's, he's feeding the multitude. He took five loaves of bread, two tiny fish, and he fed somewhere upwards of 20,000 people with that. And he didn't do that to show off. The miracle that was performed by the Lord on that day was a miracle that only someone who was God could perform. Nobody else could say, oh, that was a trick, whatever. No, they saw it right before their eyes. And that was the whole point of the miracle. Jesus wanted his disciples and the people in the crowd to know that I am God in the flesh, and I'm here to perform this miracle. And so in verse 13, if you read that text, down at the end there, verse 13, it says, they tried to make him their king by force, (laughs) the crowd. They said, man, if this guy can do this, think what he can do with... For the, for the rest of us, you know. And so they, they looked at Jesus more of not God. They kind of missed it. They missed the forest of the trees. They just were looking very selfishly at what Jesus could do for them. You know, if he can feed 20,000 people here with four, five loaves and two fish, think what he could do for us other than this. And they tried by force to make him king. And it says that Jesus slipped away because while he was a king, he would not wear the crown until he had paid for sin at the cross. So all Israel cares about in this context here in Judges is the fact that Gideon is this great warrior, and what does he do? That he can offer them peace, security, and safety. And so they're like, yeah, Gideon, we'll, we'll do whatever you want. Uh, why don't you just be our ruler? And they offer him the crown. Uh, and it's, it's kind of unfortunate because Israel thinks if, if they just have 
you know, in 1 Samuel 8, 19 to 20, the nation of Israel repeats this request for a human king. They just think if they just have a king, if they just have a king, everything will be fine. Everybody else has kings. Why don't we have a king? And they, once again, missed the forest of the trees. They, they couldn't realize that God is their king. They wanted a human king. And the reason is that they wanted to be like what? All the other nations, right? That was their desire. They would rather be like all the other nations around them than be a special people who can call him their king. They couldn't see that. And so we see the same thing today. We see churches, we see Christians alike are falling all over each other, basically, in an effort to be like everyone else. Um, I just got an email from a local pastor here who's stepping down from his church and he's heading up an organization that's basically going to try to find unity with all the churches in the Bay Area, bring them all together. Now, that's a very admirable thing. But personally, I don't see how that's going to happen because all the churches in the Bay Area don't worship the same Lord, Jesus Christ. You know, they, they just don't. And so you have to stop and you have to say, wait a minute, is peace at all costs something that we want to go after? Uh, well, Israel wanted to be like everybody else. Today we have churches that want to be like everybody else. And I think we just need people with some backbone to stand up for the right things, what God's word says, even if they have to stand alone. And unfortunately, that's what happens, especially in our area. I mean, we live in a very liberal area, so it's hard to be a conservative, Bible-believing, born-again Christian. I think you would all admit that. So you see here that they made this request. They, they wanted Gideon to lead them, to rule over them, has the idea of dominion. But they also, you see here in verse 23, the refusal. And this is where kind of Gideon gets it right, you might say. In verse 23, he says... I will not rule over you. It's like, what are you asking? And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon sees very clearly their request for what it was. He's not blindsided by this. Uh, he understands the people of Israel should have been thanking who for this victory? God. Who were they thanking? They were thanking Gideon. Took their eyes off the ball. They took their eyes off of, of God. Gideon knows that he did not defeat the enemies of Israel. He knows that very clearly. He knows that it was the power of God that gave him this victory. And the people should have been worshiping God and thanking him for the victory that they had just witnessed. And instead, they failed to see that. And well, who they worship? They worship Gideon. They turned their hearts to Gideon. They couldn't separate the idea that Gideon was the instrument, but God was the one that really... Uh, wielded the weapon, you might say, and gave him the power to overcome the, the enemy. And Gideon does exactly, in this instance, what he should have done. Would you agree? What'd he do? He said, hey, it's not about me. Right? He gave the glory to God. He refused their offer, and he even reminds them that, hey, your allegiance is not to me, folks. Your allegiance is to the Lord and to him alone. And that's the way it is today as well. It's the same way today. The majority of people is not always right. All of Israel was saying, we want you to be our king. But Gideon had the common sense to realize, hey, they're all saying this, but what they're saying is what? It's wrong. And he was able to stand up in the Lord's strength. 
And so just because a majority of people are saying one thing doesn't make it right, does it? Think about it. The majority of people cried what? Crucify him, crucify him at at Christ's trial. Uh, The majority of people tried to throw Jesus down a cliff in Nazareth when he preached in the synagogue. Uh, The majority of people refused to enter Canaan at God's command and caused the rest of the nation to die in the wilderness. So the majority of people aren't always on the right side here. And so you have to beware of the falling into that mentality. Well, if everyone's doing it, then it has to be right. The ends justifies the means. Just because people everywhere are involved in wrong behavior, whatever it may be, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it honoring to the Lord. We need to remember that, especially if we're born-again Christian, if we're saved, that God expects us to yield to his will for our, with our lives. We don't just go off and do what other people tell us to do. Look at, uh, look at one verse with me tonight. You can just turn to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to look at, at verses 19 and 20. Because this kind of seals what I'm saying, that you know what, we, we don't have the privilege as Christians to go off and do whatever we want to do. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we went over this when we were in that chapter, but verses 19 and 20, Paul says, or do you not know? He's dealing with all the immorality and everything that's going on in the Corinthian church, and we've talked about that at length. He says, do you not know that your body, as believers, as someone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And then he says very clearly and very plainly, in plain English, you are not your own, for you were what? Bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, this is a message the church at large needs to hear today. You don't get to go out and do whatever you want because all your sins are forgiven. There's a price involved here. Christ paid the price for us. But still, what are we called to do? We're called to glorify God in our bodies. And when we don't do that, there is discipline. There is a penalty. (laughs) There is an issue there. He expects us to live like we are born again. He expects us to live like we are saved people. And when we don't, there's a price to pay for that rebellion that's in our hearts. That's why we should keep short accounts with God and with others. When we sin, which we will, we all sin in a myriad of ways probably every day. But when we do, what does First John tell us to do? If we confess, or you could say since we confess, because why wouldn't we confess to the Lord our sins? We know that Christ already paid for our sins. It's not like we're going to go to God and say, oh God, you know, sorry, had this bad thought today. And God's going to go, oh, I forgave you too much. You're, you're going to hell. That would never happen because Christ already paid for our sins. So it makes perfect sense to run to somebody who has forgiven us and is willing to forgive us continually for those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He expects us to do that. Did you notice when this temptation came, it came on the heels of a great success? That always happens. It always happens that way. It always happens after you spiritually are just, man, on top of the mountain. Then what happens? Wow, then you're really tempted. And this is what happens here. You are never more vulnerable to falling into sin than you are just after you have experienced a great or incredible victory in your spiritual life. That's the time your ears need to perk up. You need to be aware of your surroundings. You need to say, whoa, I just had a great victory. I know the temptations are going to come hard now. 
That's why the wisest person in the world, whoever lived, cautioned us, Solomon, in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before, what, destruction, he says, in a haughty spirit or prideful spirit before a fall. All right, just because you have a victory doesn't give you the right to go and strut around like some big, you know, peacock, just, oh, look at me, look at me. That's, that's, pride will, will get you in trouble every time. And so Gideon here in this case, you see he overcame that temptation. And it is a temptation, is it not? I mean, when, when something goes really good at work, maybe your name gets mentioned on the thing, or you do something really well, or maybe you just teach a Bible study and everybody's talking about it, or you preach a sermon and people are coming up. It's very easy to fall into the mentality, well, yeah, that's, that's pretty good, man. I did pretty good there. You know, you, we like that. Our flesh likes that. And we can fall into this very easy. But, but here Gideon understood what that meant. Hey, this isn't my victory. This is the Lord's victory. And so he, he overcame this temptation with a very firm no. You know, he didn't shrug his shoulders and say, well, yeah, I know, I know. I was, yeah, that was pretty good. Well, well but, you know, it, it was the Lord. But, you know, yeah, God used me. He didn't even hedge on that kind of a thing. He said, no, you, you have to give honor and glory to God for this. He denied himself the glory and the honor, and he delighted in bringing glory and honor to the Lord. And it's a good lesson for us because sometimes you just have to say no. No. That's what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife tempted him in Genesis 39. Sometimes you need to say no to your friends. Sometimes you need to say no to your family. Sometimes... You need to say no more than not to yourself and your own desires. Because there are times when you just need to say no. I'm not going to go down that road. And this is one of those areas. And God help us to have the backbone to do it. You know, and I'm not saying clothe it in, in superficial humility. Because God does gift us with certain gifts. And God does allow us to use our gifts for the edification of the body. And when that happens, people are blessed. So I'm not, I'm not saying when people come up and say, wow, that, you know, that really meant a lot, what you said or what you did or whatever, that you say, oh, you know, don't ever, don't ever you know, say that. You know, don't, don't play that game. But you know, it's easy just to say, you know what, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The glory goes to God you know, and move on. So he faced that kind of secular temptation, which we all face in a myriad of ways probably every day. Secondly, he faced spiritual temptation. And this we see in 24 to 27, because we also see a request here. So Gideon says, okay, you had your request. I denied it, but I have a request for you. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. Now Gideon knew exactly what he was asking for. It's in, you know... He didn't, well, I don't know if it's two earrings or three earrings. No, he knew how much it was. <laughs> he just had weathered this incredible temptation, but in the very next breath, it's almost as if he betrays his own words. One fellow said this, the people want Gideon to have dominion, but he wants a donation. <laughs> and that's really what it boils down to. Yeah, I had this great victory. Show me, show me the appreciation, guys. Give me your gold earrings. And they had collected these from the, the corpses of the slain enemy soldiers. And so, once again, Gideon is this study of, in contrast. On one hand, he does what's great. It's right, gives honor and glory to God. But on the other hand, what does he do? 
He refuses to, or he, he gives into the temptation for wealth, for material gain. He turns down one temptation, one temptation to get glory for himself, and he points to God and says, hey, the, all the glory goes to God. But here, he yields to this temptation. And in the end, this one will turn out just as bad as the other one would have turned out. So here's their response in verse 25 and 26. The people don't even hesitate, do they? I mean, this is Gideon. They're probably thinking, oh, he's bartering. You know, what he just said, he didn't really mean that. He's going to be our king, but he, he wants to be paid for it. And so they spread out a blanket and they coughed up 1,700 shekels of gold plus garments and other ornaments. It's about 57 pounds of gold. Like I said, it's about $1.2 million in today's wealth. And these people just simply hand it over. Why? Because he asked for it. He asked for it. These are the same people. If you look back at verse 6, the exact same people. In verse 6, remember when we went through this, when he was in the, the middle of this battle, it says in verse 6, when he came, he said, verse 5, please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted and we're pursuing these, this, this enemy. Hey, can you help us out with some loaves of bread? And the people said, oh, you know what? Are the hands of the kings in your hand yet? Because if they're not, we're not going to help you because we don't know if you're going to win yet. <laughs> the same people there who won't even give him a loaf of bread. Just because he has this overwhelming victory, now he asks for basically all their gold, and they say, oh, sure, not a problem. I mean, what a, what a fickle bunch of Israel, Israel, Israelite people. And we can't be too hard on them, can we? Because we find ourselves a lot of times caught in the same thing. We're caught up in something that ultimately dishonors God just because we're on jumping on somebody's bandwagon. Just because somebody said, hey, let's go do this. Ah, okay, we'll go do this. Uh, see, we need to make sure that any cause that we are embraced in, in our own lives, has the backing of the Word of God, number one, and secondly, the will of God. Those are the two factors that we should use as filters. Someone asks you to do something, what does the Word of God say about this thing? Would this be considered the will of God? Because if you fail to do that, it will lead to embarrassment of yourself and your testimony for the Lord, but it will also lead to potential chastisement and discipline from God himself. So it's very serious. So we see that there was a request, there's a, 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 a refusal, there's a response here. And then also the third thing here, there were results in verse 27. Gideon took the gold that they gave him, and it says that he made an ephod out of it. Now, ephod was basically this garment, kind of like a vest thing that, that was worn by the high priest. And it was, it was worn by a religious figure. It was, it was worn by the priest who led God's people into worship. So it had a, a very particular, it'd be like today when you see a Catholic priest, what do they have on? They have on a collar, okay? Not everybody wears collars if they're not a priest. That would be kind of odd. That identifies you with a certain profession. It identifies you as a certain religious figure. Well, the same thing was the ephod. It was this sleeveless outer vest that basically came down to their hips. And the high priest of Israel wore this linen ephod. And usually in the front pockets, that's where they would have these 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And what they would do is that's, if you ever heard of, 
uh, the uh, Urim and the Thurim. They would, they would use those stones to try to discern the will of God. All right? And so it was, it was a religious garment. And so here's Gideon making an ephod, a golden ephod, a high priest's prayer garment from gold. And then he took this ephod, this thing he made, and he placed it in Orpha. And so you say, well, what's so bad about that? I mean, maybe he's trying to commemorate uh, the victory or something. What's he doing? Uh, we're told that all Israel, in the, in the verse there, went whoring after it. See that? That word whoring means to commit fornication, basically. It's not a good thing. The people of God went after this ephod, this golden ephod that Gideon made, and they worshipped it because what did it do? It represented victory over their enemies to them. And you say, well, is that so bad? But what we have to understand is the people were drawn away from the tabernacle in Shiloh where they were to worship who? God, Right? They were drawn away from that, and where'd they go? They went to go see this ephod that Gideon made in Orpha to worship at the feet of this ephod that Gideon built. And the principle here is beware of anything, anything that draws you away from the Lord and his worship. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be good things. You know, I've heard, I've heard parents tell me, even when I was a youth pastor that, you know, well, you know, we won't be going to church this Sunday because Johnny has a ball game. Johnny has this. Johnny has that. Or we have something else to do. And, you know, and it's not a bad thing that they're going to do. But what that thing is doing is what it's doing is drawing them away from where God says they should be as a born again believer with God's family, worshiping God as we gather together. So we have to be careful. We don't want anything that draws us away from the Lord and the worship of him to captivate our hearts. Anything that hinders you from worshiping him, uh, his way, is, is dangerous. And it will lead you potentially into adultery, possibly into apostasy. And, you know, we, we, we kind of, think, wow, you're being kind of hard. Not really. I've seen it happen with so many people. Um, no matter how right it seems, if it isn't according to God's plan, if it doesn't fit into his will, it's not of the Lord, period. Period. And see, if you have that worked out in your mind ahead of time, before the temptations come, then what happens? It's a no-brainer. You know, I've, I've had a lot of parents tell me, yeah, you know what, uh, they're, they're, they're thinking of changing the basketball games for for Sally to Sunday morning and I already told the coach if they do that she won't be on the team sounds kind of harsh you know poor Sally wants to play basketball but the parents won't let her go because it's on a Sunday but it's really not harsh it's a biblical thing to do but what happens is the system wears you down and pretty soon before you know it you know Sally's going to basketball on Sunday morning and Johnny's going to baseball on Wednesday night. And pretty soon, weeks go by before the families even worship at all together the way God says it should be. So we just have to be careful. It's not that we have to be legalistic. I mean, there's, there's occasions you're going to miss church. I'm not talking about that. 
but I'm talking about having a principle in place that says, you know what, come Sunday morning, I'm going to be with God's people. If I'm on vacation, if I, whatever. It's just something that I desire to do. And uh, it's kind of, it's fun for us when we go on vacation. We always end up going to a church that maybe we've never been to before or we visit. And it's just neat to see how they do worship. And immediately you have kind of a, uh, an experience with these people because they know the Lord and, and you, all of a sudden you have new friends it, and God blesses that. You know, it'd be very easy to just sleep in and say, hey, I'm not going to go. We're on vacation, you know. But anyway, we need to be just aware of that. No matter how right it seems, if it's not according to God's plan, it's not of the Lord. And then there were reasons here. Uh, the, the fourth thing here under he, he, he faced spiritual temptation. Why did Gideon do this? I mean, when you stop and you think about it, why would Gideon do something like that? Why would he take all their gold and then build this ephod and put it in another place so the people have to go? We're not told. <laughs> We're not told why he did it. It just doesn't say. Maybe it was that Gideon, while he didn't want to be the king of Israel, maybe somehow he thought he could be the spiritual leader. And you say, well, is that so bad? I mean, what's wrong with that? Maybe the high priest at the time wasn't fulfilling his rightful duty. Maybe he wasn't acting consistently and properly in line with what a high priest was called to do. And maybe Gideon thought somehow, hey, I did a great job with this victory in the battle, you know, and I wasn't a, really wasn't a, a warrior at the time, but I was just a farm guy, but God picked me, and, and they need help here, so I'm just going to put myself in this position. I don't know. Well, I mean, he did see God face-to-face, it says. The Lord had called him. He spoken to him. Um, the Lord used him in this miraculous fashion. Maybe he assumed that somehow because of all that, he was qualified to lead Israel in their worship to the Lord. And if that was what Gideon's intention was, unfortunately, it's a clear violation, even though his heart may have been well-meaning. It's a clear violation of what God says in his word. Why is that? Because Gideon was not from the family of Aaron. He was not a priest. You couldn't fudge in this area. God didn't tell Israel, yeah, just put whoever you want to be priest, whoever's the most popular. No. There was a very prescribed way that you became a priest. You had to be from a certain the family of Aaron. You had to be appointed. And it, was, it was a very big deal. So he was not a priest. And actually, he did the opposite of what a priest is supposed to do. A, a priest is supposed to stand between the people of God and God and, and be the mediator and, and, and make sure that that relationship remains intact. That's why they were constantly offering all these offerings in the Old Testament, because that was their job, because the people would sin, and the priest's job to make sure that, you know, looking forward to the, the, the sacrifice of Christ, that these sacrifices were made. And so it was the priest's job to make sure that the relationship between God and his people remained intact. And what happened here? He built this ephod, and it actually drew people away from the tabernacle. It didn't cause them to go to the tabernacle and worship. They, they went to this place, Ophrah, and, and worshiped this golden ephod that, that Gideon made. So even if his intention was from a proper motivation, he was flat wrong in doing this. He was just wrong. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, maybe he was building this ephod 
so that God could somehow get more glory. So he could point to it and say, hey, don't forget what God had done. Maybe, maybe he had pure motives. Maybe he really wanted to prepare a memorial to glorify God for this great victory that God had used him in. That may have been in his heart. But he did it the wrong way. He did it what something that was wrong. See, it's never wrong to do right. It's never wrong to do right. He should have stopped and said, wait, I'm not a priest. I shouldn't do this. This is wrong. Uh, but he didn't do that because we're told that this ephod, what did it do? It became a snare onto Gideon. It became something that was uh, a trap. Even though maybe he made it out of well-meaning motivation in his own heart. It says it became a snare to him and his household. It has the idea of a trap. That ephod was actually used by Satan to destroy the testimony of otherwise a very great man of God. And remember, Gideon is a, a study in contrast. He's a study in confusion, really, when you stop and step away from it. Here's a man who claims to know the Lord, and from all accounts he did, Here's a man who turned down personal glory to promote the glory of God, which he did. Yet here's a man who allowed himself to be caught in a trap that would be so obviously wrong to the people of that day. It's laughable if the results were not so tragic. And, and the, the, the principle for us is simply be careful what we do in our lives. Be careful what we do in our lives. Because there are plenty of things that come our way that appear innocent on the surface. They appear even good on the surface. But oftentimes we fail to understand that those seemingly innocent things can be tools. They can be traps used by the enemy, used by Satan himself. To destroy our influence, to destroy our testimony. To have a bad outcome on the, on the, the face of it for the Lord. And so we, before we embrace anyone's cause or before you jump on the latest bandwagon, we have to stop and, and consider before we act on what the, well, that's a great idea. We need to ask ourselves some important questions. And I think I put them there in the, yeah, in the outline. You know, first of all, ask this question. How will this affect my life? How will this decision I'm going to make, I think it's a good decision, how will it affect my life? How will this affect the lives of others? Will others be hurt by this idea? Will other people be left out by this idea? Does what I'm thinking of doing honor God? Does what I'm thinking of doing display true Christ-likeness? Does what I am thinking of doing allow me to do what Jesus told me to do in Matthew 22? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The first and the greatest commandment, the second is on to it. Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Does it allow me to fulfill that? Uh, how will this idea affect my church? That's an idea that most Christians don't even, that's not even in their thought bank when they make decisions. How will this idea affect the impression the community has concerning my church? That's a very important question to ask. How will this idea affect my testimony? How will this idea affect how people feel about the Lord Jesus Christ? See, there are a lot of uh, people who call themselves Christians. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians. Uh, and the same people 
do a lot of mean things to other people, <laughs> frankly. And the same people stand in opposition even to the things of the Lord. The same people who call themselves Christians find themselves on the wrong side of the Lord and the wrong side of his will and the wrong side of his word. And the same people commit a lot of sin in the name of self-will and really self-worship. And that confuses people. It's called, what, hypocrisy, <laughs> right? You're naming yourself as one thing, but your life is something completely different. What's unfortunate here is Gideon lost his testimony because he failed to keep God fixed in his radar. And the same thing can happen to any one of us here tonight. We have to be sure that God, his word, his will, his worship are what motivates us as we live this life for Christ each day. Um, so he faced secular temptation, he faced spiritual temptation, and he faced social temptation. Last thing here, quickly, verses 28 to 35. He, he weathered one temptation successfully, but he failed miserably here. Um, there's one final temptation Gideon faced, and he failed this one gloriously. Uh, it's the area of social temptation. I put down there, Gideon was a celebrity. He was. I mean, he defeated with 300 people, you know, over 135,000 people, whatever it was. That's a, that's, that's a celebrity. I mean, that's like superhero status, right? I mean, this is crazy. Israel, or, or Gideon was a celebrity in Israel, and as a result, there were certain temptations that came along with that celebrity status. You know, that's why the Bible says not many of you are going to be great that I'm calling. Not many are. Why? Because there's a certain temptation that goes along with all that. Here, there were temptations of wealth, power, and glory. And Gideon, unfortunately, I believe, allowed his success to go to his head. Um, and sometimes great success can lead to great defeat. I think we've seen that, frankly, with our past president. Sometimes great success can lead to great defeat. And this is the truth you see in, in the biblical lives, people like Elijah. I mean, think of the story of Elijah, right? The prophet stood on top of Mount Carmel in the power of God. He saw God give him this great victory in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 40. And then he outran King Ahab back to Samaria, even though Elijah was on foot and the king was in a chariot. That's a supernatural feat in and of itself. In verses 41 to 46. And then it was Elijah... When he was threatened by the wicked woman Jezebel, he ran away in fear. It doesn't make any sense. Elijah's greatest failure came on the heels of his greatest success. And I just say that because be careful. The same can prove true in your life, in my life. Just because we have a great success doesn't mean it's gonna, we're going to coast. It's a battle until the end. And then secondly here, Gideon was a compromiser. How do we know this? Well, we're told that he took for himself many wives. That's someone who's compromising. All right, we don't know how many wives he had, but do the math. I mean, it was enough to, for him to produce 70 sons. That's a lot. Apparently, such a large number of women were not enough for for him, because he even had a, a, a concubine or a mistress. Now, 
you know, back then polygamy was tolerated in Israel. It was, but it was never authorized by God. It was never something God said, oh, go do this. Take multiple wives to yourself. As a matter of fact, in the very beginning in Genesis 2, we're told very clearly that marriage was always what? One man, one woman, one lifetime. Period. But Gideon compromised. The first polygamist, his name was Lamech. In Genesis 4.19, he was from the line of Cain. He had no regard for the will of God. In Deuteronomy 17.17, the rulers of Israel were forbidden to take multiple wives. God knew, why did he forbid that? Because God knew that multiple wives would divide the hearts of the kings and pull them away from God. That's what you see in the heart of King Solomon, is it not? In his life? As a matter of fact, anywhere when you see polygamy in the Bible, and this is, sorry, but this is where the Mormons get it totally wrong. Wherever you see polygamy in the Bible, what do you find? Problems. Problems. I mean, you just find problem after problem after problem. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Abraham, David, Jacob, Solomon. And Gideon apparently believed that the law somehow no longer applied to him. He seemed to have this idea that he could do as he pleased, and there were no consequences for his own actions, so he could take as many wives as he wanted. After all, he's the great victor. And he paid a high price for his rebellion. And guess what? So will we. So will we. When we come to the place where we believe that we can do as we please, Regardless of the cost to God and to others, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're buying a lie. We're, we're believing the enemy. We're deceiving ourselves. I mean, as a youth pastor, I remember talking to, a lot of times it was the girls for some reason. You know, they have this boyfriend and they're fixated on this guy. And my first question, well, are they a Christian? And the answer was, well... Yeah, yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, you know, well, they're Catholic, or they're this, or they're that. And I said, well, are they a born-again Christian? Well, that's why I'm bringing them to youth group, though, Pastor. You know, I, I'm, I'm just confident that they're, you know, it's okay. I'm not one of those ones that's going to, and it usually ends tragically, tragically. Because they're not listening to what God's word simply says. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. I mean, it's very simple. It's, it's not rocket science. And when you cross that, that bridge, you've gone too far. There's always a price to pay for disobedience, and that price is always high. Well, Gideon was a casualty. In the end, this great man, really, I believe he lost his testimony, his influence, and his family, for that matter. After he died, the people, in verses 33 and 34, continued their downward slide of idolatry. Everything that he had done, all the victories he won were t- quickly forgotten. He, it was relegated to the past. He was forgotten by the very people he delivered, verse 35. And matter of fact, in chapter 9, when we get into that next week, we're, we're told, or actually a week from next week, we're told of one of his sons by the name of Abimelech. He was the, the son of, of Gideon's concubine. And when we get to that story, it's amazing because this guy decided that he should be the king of Israel. This is Gideon's son through the concubine. And through a series of events, what happens, what does he do? 
He kills all 69 of his brothers. And he declares himself king. What a tragic way. What a legacy to leave for Gideon, right? So Gideon lost his family and everything that he had worked so hard for. And the lesson here is this. When we walk in ways that are not his ways, that are not God's ways, in paths that are not God's paths, there's a terrible, terrible price to pay for our disobedience. And, you know, our, our foolish decisions can, be, can really put a, a, a bad taste in the mouths of those around us for the things of God. So we have to be aware our testimony means something to people. The way we act toward God, the way we act toward his people, the way we act toward his word and his will really speaks more loudly to those around us than the words that we say. Because they're watching us. They're watching us. So be careful how you act, what you say, what you involve yourself with. What you do will affect those around you. Um, Don't be a casualty of some foolish decision that you say, well, I thought it was the right decision at the moment. (laughs) And you look back on it, it's like, well, that was one of the most boneheaded decisions I ever made. I don't know how I was deceived so easily. Don't, don't, don't be a Gideon. What a shame it would be to live your whole life in victory and power to the glory of God just to see it all come to a pile of ashes because of one or two stupid, foolish decisions. Um, And the landscape of human history is really scattered. It's littered with such tragic stories. So many people have done so well only to see everything taken from them in the end, even after their death. It comes out. It comes out. What we do matters. We can live well. We can leave well. We can finish our course in a way that glorifies the Lord and leaves behind a good testimony. I just want to close with this story. It was an unfortunate turn of events when this young boy boy was forced to grow up without a loving father. His dad passed away when he was only eight years of age, and Robert was born September 27, 1735, to Mary Wilkin and Michael Robinson. He was a customs offer in the county of Norfolk, a marketplace and civil parish in the English countryside. And to make this young boy, Roberts, his circumstances even more difficult, his maternal grandfather, Robert Wilkin, a wealthy man who had never reconciled himself to his daughter's lowly marriage, basically disinherited his grandson and provided an inheritance for him of only 10 shillings and 6 pence. I don't know what that is, but it's not a lot. And as soon as Robert was old enough he secured a job as an apprentice to a barber. So at an early age, he had to get a job. He had to, he had to provide for his family. Even in his youth, he endured the hardship of having to be a breadwinner for his widowed mother and himself. His formal education was limited. However, his knowledge was varied and extensive because he spent many hours in study. There was an adult-like quality deeply ingrained in him, and it allowed him to accept the responsibilities of adulthood, adulthood, even as a teenager. As he grew older he, older, he came under the influence of the famed evangelist George Whitfield. And on December 10th, 1755, Roberts, Robertson could not push 
from his mind, a particular phrase used by Mr. Whitfield in one of his sermons. Mr. Whitfield said this, Oh, my hearers, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. And he was gloriously, wondrously converted, and he became a minister of the gospel. First in a Baptist church, then in a Methodist church, and then later in other denominations. In one location, his congregation grew to more than a thousand people in attendance. Unfortunately, and for some unexplained reason, he became altogether unstable and unhappy. His Christian beliefs and his training seemed of little importance to him. On one occasion, years later, the story says that he found himself sitting next to a young lady on a stagecoach. It had kind of a long ride. And to pass the time, it was reported that she began to sing to break up the monotony of the ride. And she sang this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above praise the mount i'm fixed upon it mount of thy redeeming love O to grace how great a debtor daily i'm constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And as she finished singing that song, the young woman asked Roberts, what did you think of the song? And his startling, his startling reply was, Madam, I am the unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand words if I had them. If I could feel now as I felt then. We don't have to end up like Gideon. We don't have to end up like Roberts. I pray none of us will. I pray the Lord has stirred your heart tonight to focus on living for him each and every day. To live a life that's honoring to him when people are watching and when they're not. Because it's, it's so, so, so important. If he's shown you that others are leading you into error like Gideon led Israel, the time to break from that situation is now. Stop. Just stop. And return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. We don't have to end up like Gideon. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for Gideon. Thank you for his example of obedience. And unfortunately, even the examples that he's provided for us in the area of disobedience. And Father, we pray that we would not embark on a fool's errand and go our own way. Lord, we can take many steps away from you, even in the opposite direction as your children, but it only takes one step to return to your presence. And Father, that step comes through a change of heart, repentance, knowing that we've 
been heading the wrong direction, we're going to turn back to the God who saved us. If the Lord is speaking to your heart tonight, don't push that aside. Listen to his voice so you can finish well, so you can avoid the temptations that fell Gideon. Father, thank you for your grace, and we just uh, pray that we'd have a, a good prayer time here at the end. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.